Everything on the podcast is for entertainment purposes only. Nothing I say is meant to treat or diagnose, or it's not even advice for you to follow. So remember, when you're listening to the podcast, I am a doctor. I'm just not your doctor. Welcome to On Call with Dr. Dave. We're trying something new this episode, which I'm really excited about. So we have three different doctors on, on the same podcast, and each one has a unique relationship to medicine, and they've crafted a career that's different than your average person in medicine. And it was really interesting because I didn't know a lot of these things even existed. So we'll start with Dr. Jack, and then we'll do little transitions between each one. Now, Dr. Jack is a resident right now, but his main push is he has a side business mentoring other medical students, pre-medical students, and residents. Yeah, he really lays into the importance of mentoring, and we were really, really blessed to be able to talk to him. I came from an immigrant family. I grew up in China. I lived without my mother or father for the first 10 years. My mom worked abroad. It's her dream. She came true. And it's, she was one of 13 kids. And back then, it was really difficult from a mediocre family or a poor family to get out of China. She made that dream come true right when she had about me. Unfortunately, they divorced at the same time. So when I was zero, I ended up living with her sisters. Um, By then, she established herself in Singapore. And she paid for whoever took care of me abroad back in China. So I did this for three years or so. And then she came back and she took me to America. So this was around when I was 10 and she, she did this. So I came here. We lived the immigrant, classic immigrant life, had some up and downs, lived in New York for the majority of my time since 10 years old, moved dozens of times. But then when I was in around like middle school, they had to separate, go their separate ways. And we had a struggling time after that where we ended up moving to a decent town in the same town for the school district, but we had to move to like a basement, pretty small place where, and it puts you up against <clears throat> all your friends and colleagues with these larger houses, estates and stuff. It was a pretty big white collar town um, in Westchester, New York at that point. And I realized that I had to do something. So I, you know, being Asian, I just realized I'm actually probably try to be good at school. <laughs> I was a pretty bad kid before that. So I won't get into too much of that, but we grew up in a bad area at one point as well in New York. So I did well in school after a little bit of effort. And around that time, I would say the biggest thing that changed me, the first lesson I learned was your ability to communicate and sell yourself as a product. So what I learned at the age of, I would say, 15 or 14 or so, right when like it mattered, your grades and your career choices mattered, was I realized I had really no support in my family outside my mom who worked four jobs. I had a like, set schedule every day after school. I would meet with a certain teacher for a 15 to 20 minute block, and I do this consistently. So by the end of the four years, I ended up developing fantastic relationships with all my teachers, and they were able to coach me, mentor me about not just their class, math class or whatever, but they, they were to coach you a little bit about life. And I, through them, I got some opportunities for scholarship. And then through them, I got to go to college on a full ride through this scholarship called Questbridge. And there I just kept on using my willingness to sell, sell yourself and say, hey, I am undervalued as an asset right now because I'm a hard worker. I know I can do if I try and I'm willing to seek out people who I can learn from. And I'm just 
being curious, I would just ask successful people what they do, how they got there if over like lunch or as surprisingly, many of them were willing to do. So that lesson really, I would say is the biggest lesson that carried me to where I am today is your ability to realize that if you're an undervalued asset, meaning you don't have many opportunities as your peers, you need to create them. And the best way to create that is to take risk of just asking people who are successful and who are doing things that you may be interested in or may not be, but they all have a certain line of characteristics that got them to that far and try to learn from them. So I would say like navigating personalities is probably challenge number two. And there's gonna be, no matter what stage you are, training as a resident or as an attending, there's gonna be problems that you're not gonna be able to anticipate. And you have to navigate around that and do whatever strategies you have, have an end goal that says, I am fine and I am perfectly prepared to do X, Y, Z to get to my end goal. It's interesting, you have started a company called Ask a Resident. So it seems that you probably as a medical student wanted to be able to go to somebody to mentor you like you did. You were saying that in high school, you found teachers that would mentor you. Sounds like you did the same thing in college. And then maybe when you got to medical school, you found that the people that would be best to ask were people that were just one step ahead of you. Yeah, absolutely. I think mentorship, uh, from my experience overall is, is absolutely one of the top three most positive influences you can have in your life, in your career trajectory. And I went in thinking about that, but what I did not have as a first generation, first time to be a medical student in the family, first time to try to be a doctor in the family, is I didn't know what the routes were available. I knew the basic ones, but it sounded like I needed a customized strategy that tailored to my personality, that tailored to my life experiences and my life goals. Sometimes <clears throat> life can be a little bit more comfortable where you don't want to reveal everything to a stranger that even if that person is quote unquote terms your, to be your like counselor in medical school to give you advice. They're not as, as up to date as potentially the problems you're experiencing as a student and potentially problems or the competitions that are now out there that may be stronger, more heated than what it was like 20, 30 years ago. And I ended up coaching a few people, family, friends, and friends of friends who were on the cusp of similar situations and all of them had this thing in common where they don't know in this day of medicine, what is the best field for me to go in? And they don't feel comfortable asking certain questions, maybe like hourly pay to their professors because I'll be judged on, especially as a medical student, right? So, mm -hmm. and all of that information I think should be given and available to a student very much earlier on in their medical profession, just because right now there's no definitive standard roadmap for you. you know, prior to this point, know what the standard roadmap is to get into medical school. Of course, there's non-traditional paths, but there could be tailored advising for those people as well. But generally, we know how to get to medical school. And from medical school to discover the bazillion different specialties, new ones come up like it seems like yearly. Now they have space medicine, they have nuclear medicine, all of that, right? And it, it's hard without a tailorized, customized guidance for them to not waste additional time. And Traditionally, uh, third year clinical year is like where students do develop. A lot of schools are moving to the second year where they start preclinicals and stuff and clinicals. But even that model, you don't really get to see everything. No. There's some specialties you miss. I, I wholeheartedly agree with you that we learn too late. We get the core eight specialties in medicine, really, in medical school. And then you're supposed to make a career choice. 
and then you're supposed to go on with life. And it's no wonder that I think it's one in four, maybe one in five interns change their career plans during their intern year. Yeah, absolutely. I agree with you, David. And as a first year in medical school as a heart surgeon, because <laughs> my biggest life mentor, and he's, I see him as my godfather, and he took care, he took care of me very well in school and mentored me through life. But um, he was a very successful heart surgeon, and he was retired by the time when we met. Um, and because of his inspiration, I decided to go into the field. Okay, I will try to be a heart surgeon. I'm like pretty stubborn, right? Like, I think we have this mentality where, like, we prior to medical school and getting to medical school, you're saying. When you have your mind set on something, it's probably good enough. So just keep going until you hit a brick yeah. wall where you get the job done. So I did that until third year. And then when I took my surgery rotation, I'm uh, not really seeing if any enjoyment. And then I started to steer away about, I started questioning when I was a third year. I didn't really steer away yet. Not until fourth year, I did. I ended up doing three sub-eyes. So I did an internal medicine sub-eye. I did... Uh, surgical oncology sub-I. Um, Can you tell me what sub-I is? Oh yeah, absolutely. So it's an internship where essentially it's like a little speed dating thing. Oh, okay. Except it's very, uh, speed dating is a nice way of putting it because <laughs> there's some negative things that can happen to your career or possibility to get into, especially if you don't outperform or out outperform the general population goes mm -hmm. into those speed dating. One day I rotated in the anesthesia department and I just stopped this guy I thought looked like an anesthesia guy. I wasn't on the anesthesia rotation yet, but I just stopped in the hallway. I was like, hey, mind if I see what you do? The guy happened to be really friendly. And then one thing led to another. I ended up befriending the whole department of anesthesia at my hospital, and I ended up going into an anesthesia. But that was purely by luck. I, if had I not done that, I'm pretty sure I would be one of, there's over a thousand people that leave that changes their residency in the first year, at least over a thousand people. It doesn't, it's not as big of a number compared to the whole application cycle, but that is still thousands of lives that change every single year. And this is, imagine your biggest investment that you ever did in your life over close to over at least a decade of full schooling of no, not only you don't get paid, but you, most of that, you're having a huge debt burden Plus, they pay you at the minimum level of payments during residency training. So you're taking a huge financial burden as well as a huge time burden. And I think I'm biased, but time, I think, is our greatest asset in any currency measurable. So this by far is our like biggest investment. And, and for us to change routes, and especially the farther advanced you are, the more likely there will be some sort of damage and discouragement in your career development. Now, not to say you can't overcome it and become a greater person, but there is some risk that you may not. Right? That's also the reason why I think many people can find this type of mentoring, individualized mentoring from residents who just went through the cycle more beneficial. Definitely. And we talk a lot about physician burnout. And if you end up in the wrong specialty, that's going to lead into burnout. If you just don't enjoy what you do day to day, and then you add all the extra things on top of it, the insurance companies, the billing oh, issues, yeah. like malpractice, administrators, and you don't enjoy what you do. So I think that's a big piece of the puzzle is for burnout is actually ending up in a career that suits your talents and your passions. And if you are end up in a specialty you don't enjoy, 
how are you going to avoid burnout? How are you going to be happy in your day-to-day life? It's going to be a lot harder. The backlash from changing, I'm sure you're looked at a little sideways. Maybe it's not necessarily cheered on. It's probably frowned upon, but the best thing about being an adult is getting to change your mind. But there's a lot of invalidation that goes along with this path in general, being a med student and not getting the validation of you're a good student anymore sometimes, or you're not getting the validation from your attending. And like you spoke to knowing that you are an undervalued asset, that you have that value, regardless of what's going on at work. And it's okay to take a turn, be like, you know what? I thought this was for me, but it's not. And if we allowed more people in healthcare to maybe, instead of just doubling down to pivot, maybe we wouldn't have the burnout that we're having. Yeah. Now I have a question about your business here. They ask a resident, is that something that is exclusively geared towards medical students or undergrads as well? So it's not geared towards just medical students. It's we, we cater to pre-meds uh, all the way from high school, where some people are interested in potentially applying for the accelerated medical school and college programs, all the way to post-grads, medical students who are more in line of, or more up-to-date on what sooner professions don't have. Okay. Yeah. The sooner you think about those things and the earlier you have to make better choices or get mentorship or learn what you need to get into certain specialties, I think the better. So, Or a plan on what if it doesn't go the way you want to. Is it the end of the world? Is it not, these are our strategies for dealing with maybe you didn't get into school you wanted to or match the residency you wanted to, that there's somebody in your corner to not only talk to about it, but to formulate a plan who actually knows what they're talking about. And actually, I think you touched on something very, so I I think there's a huge benefit to to be able to realize what if things don't go right the first time, right? Because like I said, if you've realized later down the line, if that specialty you went into was not the right one, likely you probably would have had a bunch of negative experiences to get to that point, to make you realize (laughs) I am not getting what I want and this is not working out, I'm miserable every day. So ideally to prevent that, but it takes a certain amount of courage and self-realization and respect for yourself. And again, see yourself with confidence that everything will still work out, even if your plan A doesn't work. And that courage to discover what is the what if, I think is essential for anyone who's ever, hopefully not, but if they do unfortunately found themselves, find themselves in that predicament for them to get out and make themselves better and happier, they, they have to take that leap of faith. Can you think of an experience where you were the mentor, but it changed the way you thought about something or that just a situation that touched you deeply that you were involved with? Yeah, so there were a few times where I had the privilege of helping um, people who were applying for medical school. One of them was actually a family friend. The, my mentor's granddaughter was applying about my experience of saying, this is not only my time to pay pay my respect to my mentor, and but also to share the knowledge I've gained through hitting brick walls and trial and error, and hopefully that she won't make the same mistakes and she has all those tools and experiences in addition. I. Hope that she listened to the majority of the story. I would say that's probably one of the 
times where I felt very rewarded to be able to be involved in someone relatively close to me, but not, you know, as close to my inner circles. And I think I helped in the end um, by making her decisions a little bit easier between some of the specialties. Now, for people that are interested in getting involved in mentoring, do you take on new mentors or are you pretty much full? Explain to people if they're interested in yeah. one being a mentor and then the opposite side, if you're looking for advice, how, does, how do people find you and what's the process like? Sure. So we have our own website uh, called asktheresident.net where clients would read up on what we do and they could sign up for spots. For if you are interested in being one of our mentors, um, we're currently taking residents for interns who have some life experiences that um, probably like changing a career or close to changing a career that makes them more um, knowledgeable into like looking through all the different specialties. And they can also contact us through our my Instagram accounts. I think would be a good starting outlet where they can email us at our generalized email account, which is on our websites. But my Instagram is jmizmd, and they can certainly contact me and I'll relay the message. Great. Jack, I definitely appreciate you spending your evening with us. I know you got right off of work and then yeah. joined us right away. So we're going to let no you worries. go, get, get some dinner, get some sleep. <laughs> get some I, studying done. Yeah, get, get some, some studying, studying done. done. But uh, yeah. I, pre I appreciate what you do. I, I love watching new people come through the program and dedicate themselves mm -hmm. to medicine and to helping people. Have a good night. Thank Thanks you. for the evening. Yeah. So that was Dr. Jack. And now we're talking to Dr. Christine. Welcome to On Call, Dr. Dave. Today we're talking to Dr. Christine. And Dr. Christine, this is our first time having a psychiatrist on. In fact, Ashley and I were talking on the drive today that as many friends as we have in medicine, we don't know very many people personally that went into psychiatry. I don't know any. And as much as we love mental health and we talk about mental health, we have our own therapists, we have yet to talk to a psychiatrist. So this is pretty fun for us. Wonderful. I'm honored to be the first psychiatrist on the podcast. Now, I, we were talking just a little bit before, and it seems like you had maybe a non-traditional way to get into medicine. So we were going to talk about your path into medicine and then your path into psychiatry and how it led you to practice psychiatry remotely. So I'd love to hear your story. Just take us through what first got you interested in medicine and was it initially psychiatry or was it something completely different that sparked your interest? Yeah, for sure. I initially was interested in medicine from age eight. So it's been a pretty long time coming. Me too, yeah. <laughs> I was eight as well. <laughs> oh, awesome. And maybe it must be something about the age of eight. When we Formative make age. I don't know. <laughs> So I grew up in um, East Orange, New Jersey in the inner city. And so really the area that I grew up in, there was a lot of addiction. There was gun violence. Like I remember, interestingly, playing this game with my friends as a kid and we called it drive-by. And so oh. we would run around in the backyard and then if a car came by, you had to jump on the ground as fast as you could. That was a fun game that we played. 
So it was like really being used to some of the things that are really difficult for children to, to deal with in communities. And so I saw a lot of, from my neighbors, them financially struggling to care for their children. And this was before I knew about things like the socio-political determinants of health, right? I, I didn't know about things like that at that point. And I didn't even learn much about them during medical school or during training at all, really. So it was something I really learned about later. But I think it was those initial moments of just being in that community that made me think about education. That was the first thing that came to my mind. Okay, what if people just knew more about health or what if they knew more about these types of lifestyles? Maybe I could shift things in my community this way or that way. And so I think I really combined that with my love for science. And that's what led me into medicine initially. In terms of psychiatry, I've always been fascinated with the brain. I try not to credit my mother with things, but she's a therapist. So I think that probably- <laughs> Maybe a shout out, Maybe. yeah. <laughs> she's a therapist. So I think that probably has, has something to do with it. But when I was in medical school, out of all of the different things that I was learning about, the behavioral sciences just really stuck out for me. And so even in the midst of, I would say, the joys that I experienced with medicine, there was this feeling of, of unbelonging that I experienced with attendings. I remember one time on rounds, an attending told me that he felt like I didn't exist what? on rounds. What does that even mean? Like I was non-existent and I, and a senior resident kind of pulled me to the side later on and tried to empower me and uplift me and make things better because he could just see how demoralizing it was. And I know I had a lot of peers who experienced those kind of things as well. That always made me think about doing medicine differently mm -hmm. and so having this other kind of lifestyle. And I always had a passion for traveling. It was something I always did in medical school. I, we had that first summer off. I went to Costa Rica to <laughs> learn medical Spanish in fellowship. They also allowed us a month off and I went to Nepal to, to stay in a Tibetan Buddhist monastery to learn more about mindfulness and meditation. And so I always would try to fit it in the way that I could, but it was, it never felt like enough. It never really felt like it was a lifestyle that was designed by me for me that I was trying to fit into a mold. And so <clears throat> I feel like we always have this idea that training is going to be a certain way and then we'll become attendings and then it'll just magically be all different. <laughs> <clears throat> and it turns out that it wasn't that different. So I still found myself, even though I was working with children, which I love. I was doing psychiatry, which I love. I was working with the types of communities that I always wanted to work with since I was a kid. I was doing the type of work I was really passionate about. I was in leadership. And I felt like the more that I did the things that I always said I wanted to do, the more burnt out I was. I was just taking on more and more, but it didn't feel generative. It felt actually quite depleting. And so I knew it was a different way I had to go about it. I remember taking this trip to Thailand with my sister. We took like a 10 day trip and I was sitting on Kata Beach and 
I was writing in my journal and I said, this is actually my life. Like this moment, this is what my life should really be. And the moments that I'm just hustle, bustle, working over 60 hours a week, that should be like my vacation. Like my two weeks of my life should be like, of my year should be like that. And the rest should be like this. <laughs> and so I spent my 17 hour flight back to the US writing my plan out. I was like, I need to come up with a strategic plan of how I'm gonna redesign my life. And when I got back, I, I cried for about five days. It hit me so hard. Tell us about your situation. Yeah. So right now I, I do contract work and some consulting. And so I usually do that maybe about 15 hours a week when I choose and the rest of my time. So I, I put that on about two days a week. And so for about five days a week, I'm traveling, I'm exploring. I, I have a lot of hobbies and passions. Okay. <laughs> <So> <laughs> I am um, coaching physicians who also want to live location free and want to fast track to time and financial freedom. So that's something I do. I became a wine professional, something I wanted to do since I was in uh, medical school. <laughs> so I did that. I'm just able to have a life that is able to integrate and center all of my passions instead of just one of them. And medicine is just one of my passions. And so that's how I live my life now. I switch countries about every three months. And so I always wanted to have friends all over the world. That's something that's a, a reality now. And yeah, it just, I think I wake up with a different sense of freedom and peace and joy. And I think it just comes from knowing every day that I created a life that I really want instead of one that was created for me by default. And have you noticed that it's changed how you interact with patients when you are counseling them, when you're talking to them? Has it changed a lot of how you approach your therapy sessions with them? A hundred percent, a hundred percent. I Sometimes I wonder how our work as doctors would shift if we had the same time and space and freedom to do the introspective and self-care work that is really needed to help heal people the way that we do. So for me, having, you know, years of years now of time and space to imagine, to create, to do deep introspective work on myself has really made me a much better physician, a much better therapist. I also, like I said, give from my overflow. I give from that part of me instead of what's left of the week. And I think that patients can feel that, like you can feel that energy. My joy of psychiatry is, is so much greater when I do it less than 20 hours a week. So <laughs> like I just come, I come to the table with much more joy and excitement and enthusiasm because I'm doing it because I really want to do it in terms of some of my consulting. I have more space to do it. Mm -hmm. It's just the type of work that you really need to give from the overflow when you're connecting with someone in that way. It's different than just walking in a room in 15 minutes and being out when someone is telling you really things about their lives that they haven't even told their own spouse who they're with every single day. And so I think 
it's such an honor and a privilege to be in that position, to be able to help someone through transitions such as those, at those different meaningful points in their lives. But I think in order to show up in the right way, I, like you mentioned, like I have to be in a place of feeling healed myself. I'm curious about your coaching practice. So you coach other physicians to make empowered decisions about their careers. What kind of physicians have you worked with? So there are physicians who really similar to myself found themselves in a state of burnout and or depression, working over 50, 60 hours a week and really being able to transform their lifestyle into one where they can take their family on vacation when and where they want, where it's not just this weekend or this week, but can take these months off and go to a different country. And I find when speaking with them that it's really those experiences, like those moments, those memories that they're creating that mean the most to them. Those are the things that they cherish the most out of all of these other instances in their lives. I think we think so much about like financial stability and not that isn't important. I think it's all part of the package and it is part of the coaching work is learning about how to circulate money in a way that aligns with your deepest values. But I think that the transformation really is not on not only in the financial freedom but in the time freedom is being able to be where they want when they want wherever they want and with whom they want to be with i think that is transformational but it's not something that we've been taught as doctors is something that we deserve or is something that we can have and so for the physicians that i work with um, that's usually what they were seeking, some aspect of that. Some people are more focused on location because they love travel. Some people are more focused on time, like they want to be in the location they're in. But the type of quality, the quality of time that they want to spend with their families, they can't find it even where they are staying still. I think that being able to create that with them is is for me, really powerful to see that transformation. And how do doctors find you? So people that are looking for coaching and to connect with you, what's the easiest way to reach out and get a hold of you? They could go to my website. It's thenomadmd.com. I'm on IG. I'm at the nomadmds, and on Facebook, I'm at the nomadmd. I think every doctor can take this to heart. Whether or not you stay in the same city and stay in the same practice but just set up your life to be more conducive to happiness or whether you decide to leave the country and do what you do. I think there are multiple routes where doctors can be happier. And I need, we need doctors, we need nurses, we need everybody in medicine. And the burnout's real. More and more people are leaving medicine altogether. And so as you look at your career and you wanna still help people, you are, if you can work 20 hours a week, and still help people in those 20 hours, and they may be more effective, then great. But if you're just gonna leave medicine altogether, then you're not helping those people anymore. So it's, are you better serving people 50 hours a week and being burnt out or quitting altogether? Or are you gonna be better served and are your patients going to be better served by you taking a step back 
and maybe seeing fewer people working fewer hours, but being able to give better quality care and also to stay in medicine, not be burnt out, not leave, but staying. If more people went part-time, we'd be much better off than the people that are just leaving medicine altogether. Absolutely. And I think also to your point, being able to have that time in that space is what allowed me to become an entrepreneur and a physician coach. And I really feel that through that mechanism, I've been able to help a lot more patients than I would have ever helped just seeing them one by one where I was. Yeah. Thank you for coming on the podcast. Thank you for living your life the way you want to and inspiring others to do the same. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Very nice to meet you. Thank you. It was great to hear from Dr. Christine about her non-traditional approach. And now we have a family medicine doctor who has also found a different way to practice medicine. Now she doesn't go abroad like Dr. Christine. She's in her own community, but has a unique and novel approach to how she treats her patients. Thank you so much for inviting me to be here. I, I love that you're promoting physician voices. This is what's the challenging time right now to be a doctor, right? We all know that, right? And I think we're also fortunate to have social media because we're able to connect across the distances in a way that we just really couldn't when I was starting out. And so now to be able to present yourself to people, to give virtual talks to other students and residents just that are nowhere in your physical vicinity, I think it's just, it's awesome. And so I think that's something we can use to keep our profession positive and to support each other at a time when there are so many forces that are discouraging students, right, from going to this profession, and then also discouraging doctors from staying in the profession. So I feel like anything we can do to shore each other up and remind each other of why we got into this and what are the good things about medicine is just worth putting out there. Now, tell me a little bit more about your platform and what you focus on. I am a direct primary care. I started out as a family physician. I've had three positions, and then I opened a private practice five years ago. So when I opened my Instagram account, I was really trying to market my private practice. But then I have an unusual model, which is called direct primary care, which is a newer model. Um, it's not insurance-based. It's a membership model. And at first I thought it was concierge, but it turns out it's meant to offer affordable medical care. And when I learned about it, I was really excited because it seemed to be the perfect marriage of allowing the doctor to practice more slowly and then also breaking away from insurance, which cut out a whole level of admin and billing and staff and paperwork, but then also really understanding the finances behind healthcare um, and being able to offer patients discounted medication, discounted labs, and a lot of services that are, you know, actually they're at a cheaper price point than even patients with insurance often have to pay. So in the process of opening that practice, I started my account to bring patients in and I was talking about my practice and then my practice filled and it's at capacity now. So when that happened, I realized that I enjoyed my work so much. I was the happiest I had ever been in all of my 20 plus years of practicing. And I just, I kept remembering how unhappy I had been in 
three prior jobs. And I just thought, I just really want other docs to be able to have this opportunity. I, I don't want to retire and not let other people know, hey, this is an option. You don't have to be in primary care and be unhappy. There's another way to practice. And so that's when I pivoted my account to reach out to medical students and residents and other doctors to talk about direct primary care. And then it expanded to talk about why medicine is still a great field and what's happening in medicine today and what corporate takeover means and what you have to know as a young doctor when you start to pick your first job and just some of the ins and outs of the healthcare landscape today. So many times insurance denies claims, they won't pay for things. We have to go through so many hoops to get the tests I want. Mm -hmm. And so it just delays care so many times that, yeah, if you can run a business model where you are just paying for the care you need and the doctor orders a test and then you do the mm -hmm. test and it's cheaper than yeah. it would have been through insurance and you don't have to have some middleman say no, which is the worst. Doesn't sound half bad. <laughs> it's just, it's really liberating. Um, it feels great to practice in a way that is price conscious, but then at the same time, you can do things that are a little bit more innovative. You can just partner with the patient and not worry about is this necessarily going to be approved because this patient meets the criteria. Now, how, how has that changed your, you know, obviously it's changed how you feel about how you practice, but has it changed your interactions with patients when you're sitting down with them? It's completely different. So I set my practice up to be part-time. A part-time DPC practice is usually 200 to 300 patients max. A full-time would be 400 to 600. So I capped mine at 200 because I have very minimal staff. I have a front desk person, but I do everything in the exam room myself. So I don't have a nurse or an MA. All of this to keep overhead at a lower price point, and it's just the way I like to practice. So with 200 patients, I know them very well. I do a lot of things virtually. When they come in, there's no need to rush. There's some people who if they're older, I know they're going to take a little longer. I'll book an hour. If they're a little faster or it's just one or two things, I'll book a half an hour. But there's no need to rush. And what I found is that when you slow down a little, you get everything done. And they really don't want to be there all day. They have stuff to do. They want to get on with their life, right? So we get everything done and chit-chat a little and then everyone moves on. And guess what? 30 minutes is just 15 minutes longer than what you're being forced to do in a typical model, right? But everybody's so much more relaxed. And I'm more relaxed. I'm able to do more. So I'm able to look things up, try out newer things, read up more, decide if I want to branch into different practice patterns that are a little bit more innovative than what I did before, because now I can read up on them and I can bring in other tests or other modalities that maybe I wasn't using before because I just didn't have time uh, to explore them. And then I'm by myself. So I don't have, I have to figure things out more by myself. And because we're trying not to refer out, especially for patients without insurance, I have to try to work things up a little more myself before I send them anywhere. So I, I, and I think what's also fun is becoming a business person as well. I, I didn't think I would like that. I <laughs> resisted it in all the years prior in my career. I thought, nope, 
I'm never going to be in private practice. I never want to run a practice. That is not me. Entrepreneurship, there's no way. But because the whole layer of dealing with insurance is removed, I learned that it's actually very easy to start a small business and a small practice. It's not hard to open one. It's not hard to run it. Once you set things up, when it just runs on its own, there's very little to do every month. And the bulk of what I'm doing, 80, mm, yeah, 70 to 80% of what I'm doing is just patient care. The rest of it now at year five, it's just pay a couple bills, check all the licenses are up, order some supplies when they're running low. And there's no marketing anymore because if I have a waiting list and if patients recommend family and friend, I'll put them on the wait list and then eventually let them in if there's some space. So it's just a lovely way to practice. It's some challenges here and there, but by and large, just really fun. Yeah, sounds a lot different than the uh, standard family medicine or internal medicine model where you probably are spending I don't know, 25 to 35% of your time directly with the patient and the rest of the time is administrative staff or tasks, HR duties, finishing notes, battling insurance companies with prior authorizations. <laughs> this sounds delightful, honestly. I love that you're doing something different as well. And I think that's a big message for young family doctors today is that you have different options. You can and you, direct primary care and straight family practice are just two of them. I think we have so many different things. You can open a practice and be functional medicine only or aesthetics only, weight management, right? Employment physicals, executive physicals, travel medicine. You can do so many things in family medicine. And it, it's just, I think, getting over that fear of running a business and maybe in medical education, that's just not really brought out as a possibility because it doesn't really serve medical education, right? Well, that's great. We thank you so much for joining us on this podcast. Thank you so much for what you're doing and for being willing to talk about doing things differently. And hopefully people that are listening will be able to craft a career that they're interested in. And if you want a career that matters, it's hard to come up with a better one. I absolutely agree. And I've never regretted my decision to go into medicine. I would pick it all over again. I would even, you know, I know that the jobs I had led me to where I am today. And I just really hope that other young people enter this profession too and carry it forward. It can continue to grow and they can experience the joy in their work that you and I have both been able to. And thank you so much for having me on the podcast. And I just love that you're continuing to uplift our profession. It's just fantastic. Thank you so much. Have a good night. Hi, this is Dr. Dave. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode. Please rate, review, and share this episode so that we can continue to get you more stories in the future.